Welcome to the RSP cast film and data, Adam Maharstead, Matt Waldman. We, we probably should call this the RSP cast film and theory because Adam's, you know, Adam's articles drive a lot of this, which is, and, and one of the articles that he does that you can find at footballguys.com is dynasty in theory, which is a, a fantastic one. And some of the things that we've talked about, you know, either in the past or thought about doing in the future, we're talking about things like tanking and hyperbolic discounting. We talked about dented cans recently. That's kind of a, you know, in some ways related to that. And today, I mean, seems like I, it was funny. I got a podcast from an old RSP um, contributor. Eric Stoner sent me a link to Seth Walder's um, tweet about momentum. And then invariably I, I looked to see what Adam had to say because I wanted, to, I was interested in the scene if he had seen it. And sure enough, he had. <laughs> so I thought it would be a fun conversation for us to, to just talk, revisit the idea of momentum in, in sport and really revisit it in a way of talking about does it exist? And if it does, is there a way for it to be even considered useful, you know, as a you know from a perspective um you know for people when they acknowledge it what what's really the use of understanding about it you know and how is how is that understanding applied so so really you, you know adam i mean I, I wrote something a long time ago and i've saw i've seen that you've written something about it as well in the idea that i've always thought momentum was very much real just because we couldn't measure it didn't mean that that it didn't exist and i think that you know if you've played in any sport or you've performed and you're someone that's performed on a stage you you understand that there's some that emotion plays a role in in performance i mean it's just invariably that it that it will i mean anytime you even people who do podcasts if they're just doing podcasts there's a difference between how you might speak um before you turn that red button on and then how how you're going to speak when you see that red button glowing and you know that this is going to be on air in front of a lot of people. Um, I know I've certainly had that experience. That's why, you know, even as someone who plays music, I, I record myself frequently just as a chance to get used to the idea that I know in my mind that someone's listening because the emotion of that is far different than just practicing in a room by yourself. Yeah. Uh, first off, I want to say up front, I'm going to apologize to our listeners in advance. Uh, you can probably tell I'm kind of getting over the flu here. Um, but I was I was chomping at the bit. We had two weeks off and I wanted to get back in and jump into the podcast. And um, I think with hindsight, we're going to look back at this episode of the podcast as, as my version of like the flu game or the bloody sock. I think we're just going to admire <laughs> my perseverance through adversity here. Yeah, absolutely. I was just trying to, you know, I was trying to be the coach that was like, there's nothing wrong, you know. You know, yeah, yep. just put them in, just rub some dirt on it. Are you hurt or are you injured? That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, you wrote, I think, I think both of us wrote back in 2014. Um, and I'm, I, it's hard to remember exactly, but I think my piece was partly um, inspired by yours um, and kind of, kind of in conversation with yours from a different perspective. Um, and you were writing about, you know, like emotion is real. Obviously emotion is real. Anybody who's played football will tell you that, emotion is real and impacts their performance. This, this is anybody who's done anything, like you were saying, recording a podcast, any human endeavor, any human performance is going to be impacted by things like emotion, things like mental state, things. And, and so anybody who's coming out and saying like, this is not real, I mean, they're gonna get laughed out of the room because any human being who has existed and experienced the exist the experienced the human experience knows that this is real yeah. um and so you were writing about that and, and i you know i think you were right on i think you were making some points that should have been obvious but for some reason they weren't and they were good points and um i was trying to look more at, at why this disconnect was happening yes where everybody who played the game said momentum is real and then you had some analysis some analysts who were saying you know momentum's not real. And I also want to draw a distinction here. I, I'm kind of digressing, but I want to draw a distinction here. The piece that inspired this 
um, somebody interviewed a bunch of analytics staffers. You know, these are like the best football analysts in the business, people who are being paid real money by professional football franchises to perform analytics. And 75% of these staffers said momentum was real. And one, one of them said, you know, like I've looked at the data, I understand like if you include it in the model, it's not improving predictive performance, but that doesn't mean it's not real. And that was kind of the point I was making back in 2014 that, I mean, when we talk about real, like a lot of analytics is, is focused on predictive. You know, if, if you give me this bit of information, will I be able to make better predictions about the future, right? My team has a this percent chance of converting on fourth down. If you give me more information, I'm going to adjust that percentage higher or lower. And if my model's well calibrated, we'll make better decisions. And I get that momentum's not predictive. I've looked at it too. Um, over a decade ago, I looked at teams, games where the two teams were tied. And I looked at how large of a deficit the trailing team had overcome. So you get game states where the teams are tied and the trailing team scored three consecutive points and games where the teams were tied and the trailing team scored 21 consecutive points. And you would think if momentum was a real effect, the team that overcame a larger deficit would have more momentum and be more likely to ultimately win. And that's not the case. I mean, everybody who's looked at this finds it doesn't matter how big of a deficit you overcome. If the game's tied, the game's tied. You're just as likely to win no matter what. Now, with that said, I also remember the 2012 game between the Broncos and the Chargers. Chargers scored 24 first half points. It was 24-0 at halftime. Broncos could do no right. Came out after halftime, and they just boat raced the Chargers. And you could see the Chargers imploding in real time. Broncos scored 35 unanswered. Became the first team in history to fall behind by 24 points and still win by double digits. You know, they had like an interception return for a touchdown, a fumble return for a touchdown. The Chargers just could not get out of their way. And you could tell, I mean, like by the end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter, just from body language, you could tell the Chargers thought there was no way they were going to win it. They knew the Broncos had the upper hand. And so it's hard to reconcile watching that happen and knowing, of course, momentum is real. You can see the effects that it had on the game. And then looking at the data, and knowing that, like, you can't predict things based on momentum. And the difference that I latch on is that some things are descriptive. You know, they describe what happened. And some things are predictive. They predict what's going to happen next. And just because something's not predictive doesn't mean it's not real. We don't know how somebody's going to respond to adversity. That's going to change from person to person. Even within the same person, they will respond differently to adversity one time than they will to another time, right? We can't predict how somebody's going to respond to adversity, but that doesn't mean that adversity doesn't impact them. You know, descriptively, the example I use here is, is Brett Favre. In 2003, his father passed away a day or two before Monday Night Football. He went on Monday Night Football and played the Oakland Raiders. You could tell, I mean, he was not himself. He was crying on the sidelines. He was not, I mean, he was barely able to keep it together. And then he stepped on the field and you could tell the game was just pure catharsis for him, right? As aggressive as Brett Favre usually was, crank that up tenfold, right? As reckless as he was, you know, he, he did not see, there was not like a one inch window that he saw in that game that he wasn't going to take a shot at. Um, and you could tell it was cathartic and he was amped up at the beginning and then by the end he was just crashing and he had no energy left and he played one of the best games of his career and it was because of his grief you could see the impact that the grief had on his game but that doesn't mean that if tom brady's father died tomorrow that tom brady would come out and play the best game of his career right if if kirk cousins father died tomorrow we don't know how kirk cousins would react and i think that a lot of people in the analytics movement have done real damage to their cause by by conflating predictive and real there are things that are that are real but not predictive um everything that's predictive is real but not everything that's not predictive is not real um and it's like i said 75 percent of analytic staffers were saying that momentum is real so part of it is just that you know the voices who say heterodox opinions who say things that seem crazy they get more amplified 
So it seems like more analytics people think that momentum isn't real than actually do. Right. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you and I both agree. Just because we don't know how people will react doesn't mean that they won't react. And saying otherwise, I think, does a real disservice to your message. Um, you know, it makes people not really want to listen to you. I think one of the fascinating things about this, and since we get to kind of discuss this in a theoretical sort of way, is what are some possible ways that it could eventually be predictive? And I'm talking like almost science fiction type of stuff here at this level of where we're at but but it's but when i think about momentum a lot i i think a lot about fi fighting sports and and certainly football is very is closely related to a fighting sport and i was just watching a video about a a, a muay thai great by the name of say chan i think his name is say chan and he's like for a 42 year old mai tai artist who has won multiple championships who has and they were sh and i was watching a video about i think his 12 greatest um defeats and most of them featured him turning the momentum in his favor by basically psyching out the opponent with the opponent trying to bully him or trying to counter the types of techniques that he would use to try and psych his opponent out. Um, and you could see the moment where the, where the opponent just folded emotionally. And I think, you know, good examples of that, that people know in our, in our, in the American lexicon of, of fighting would be a lot of, you know, would be first the Muhammad Ali fight, which is, you know, his fight against, um, you know, George Foreman. And you think about George Foreman being a big, monstrous, hard-punching boxer who could come back in his 40s and still, even as slow as he was, you know, could just knock people out with, with the level of power that he had. And, you know, at the height of his career, he was a very scary fighter to face, and there was a bit of a, a bully aspect to that. And you could see that Muhammad Ali kind of bullied the bully. The other fight that was really well known for that in our lexicon is the Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield fight. And where I'm getting to with this is that you watched Mike Tyson and he was always known as the bully, the big puncher with incredible speed who just dispatched his opponents within record times, it seemed like on a regular basis. And Evander Holyfield, even though being a light heavyweight, was a very skilled fighter. And the the boxing trainer Teddy Atlas, who trained Mike Tyson with Customato um, early in his career, gave a really great podcast that I would just recommend Teddy Atlas on Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. And I think it's on Joe Rogan is on one of those. And I'm sure he's done others that are separate from that. But he discusses his theory about it. And he said, well, I knew Mike Tyson since he was a young man. And he grew up in Brownsville, New York, which is a very rough neighborhood. And Tyson got bullied a lot as a young kid. And he used to hide between the walls of streets in between buildings to stay away from bullies. And knowing him, he was a bully. That was kind of how he developed any level of confidence was to be a bully of people. He said, we're in contrast, when I learned about Evander Holyfield's upbringing, he was a guy who, he had a very strong parent who, when he learned to box, he had a lot of brothers. He was kind of the youngest. He was the youngest and kind of the weakest of a lot of brothers who were, who, um, were good athletes. And he really didn't want to, he wanted to play football. His mother made him box and he went back to, um, he, he wanted to quit. And his, uh, he said that every, at every turn in Evander Holyfield's childhood, he had a parent who basically was like, you're not quitting. If you're afraid, you've got to work through it. You've got to learn how to deal with fear in a, in a more positive, um, or constructive aspect than hiding from it. And, um, you know, when you watch that fight, he said it was easy to see that when Mike Tyson tried to tried to bully Evander Holyfield and he finally had a fighter who would not be bullied back, or you could even use the D Buster Douglas fight, that when 
they weren't bullied back that Mike ice cream might Mike Tyson turned into ice cream. I mean, like his emotions just, he just melted. And with Mike Tyson, he had that meltdown and he bit off only fields ear to get out of the fight. And so my thought is, is it would be interesting to, to look at whether one aspect of momentum is if one side tries more of a bullying or has more of a bully attitude against its opponent and when its opponent doesn't back down from the bully attitude and gives it back to them that the other team melts if there's if there's a collective if you could at some day see if there's a, actually a collective bully you know in terms of approach and i would think that if there's one area where you could possibly say this might be a dynamic that we could maybe not predict, but we could describe before it happens um, as a possibility, kind of like techniques and say one emotional technique is to, is to bully people. And the, and if the bully gets bullied back, um, that's when you can see a momentum shift. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because even looking like within specific teams, um, I haven't really found any tendency for some teams to be better able to sustain momentum and other teams to not. I mean, I think it really is that, like, every situation is different. Yeah. And just because you responded in one way to one doesn't mean you'll respond that way in the next. Um, you know, like the – it's not a, a fighting sport, but, like, another famous example is uh, Yana Novotna in yeah. Wimbledon had one of the most famous choke jobs of all time. I believe she was like one point away from Wimbledon, uh, from a Wimbledon title. And she just melted down. She couldn't serve. She was faulting. She was, you know, giving up easy points. Um, and you could see from her body language, you know, she's doing the, the um, surrender Cobra with her hands on her head and her elbows up. And she's, you know, got her head under a towel and she can't like even look at her opponent. And it was just an epic collapse and she's crying. Um, on the sides and it just famously epic it's it's probably in sports psychology the most famous example of choking um and one the one that po people point to to say that like yes choking is real she choked and and she wouldn't dispute that but then again you know yana Navatna later came back and won wimbledon right just because she did that one time doesn't mean that she was a choker and and choking i think is another label that um the analytics would point and say you know like it's not really real at the nfl level by the time you get to the nfl you've survived so many filters that if you're not mentally tough you don't make it that far um and there are examples of teams choking you know the chargers against the broncos i mentioned the browns Phillip against Rivers, the broncos the bills sure. in every super bowl sure know. But like the quarterback in that game was Philip Rivers, and nobody would say he's not a mentally tough quarterback, sure. right? He was not a choker. He had plenty of mentally tough games. It's just that one, for some reason, for one reason or another, you know, it, it, it he didn't. And and that same Broncos team that had that huge comeback against the Chargers a year later gave up a huge comeback against the Patriots, where they had a twenty-one point lead, and Brady brought them back. Um, you know, and then you could say, well, maybe Brady has Manning's number, but then again, you have like the 2006 AFC championship game where Manning had the huge comeback against Brady and Brady couldn't get it done. Um, maybe so it a, just, it, maybe, maybe yeah. a better way of describing it is, is that all players are capable of choking, but that doesn't make Absolutely. them a choker. And it's the perspective of the audience that oftentimes informs why we call people that and it can be an accurate perspective because think about like I, another thing i was watching recently was john McEnroe's story and i'm not a big tennis fan but i grew up watching tennis and his classic wimbledon against bjorn borg where they had this match point that was an epically long match point that they traded over and over again is an example of two mentally tough psychologically geared opponents who just would not give in to each other in a really high pressure point and i think that where i would maybe disagree slightly is i i think it's not so much that they've been through so many filters that they won't choke um but i do think that um 
to call some, I think they're mentally tough enough that very rarely could you ever call NFL players chokers by, by craft. Like that that's, that that's embedded into their game because they wouldn't be able to, to play week to week. But I do think that every individual in, can, can encounter a situation, especially when they're facing someone who's of an equal belief that they're going to win when they come in. Because I was just listening to, I just saw this yesterday, John Danaher, who is a teacher of MMA um, and very well known. I, I was following him on Facebook because he gives all these tips about MMA. And it was somebody that John Owning, the uh, PFF editor, recommended because John Owning is an international um, was an international Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitor, and he's a teacher um, in addition to being a wonderful football analyst um, who used to write for the Dallas Morning News as well. And he would talk about Danaher, and Danaher was saying that, talking about how what's most fascinating is when you have an accomplished opponent who believes before the match even begins that he's going to win, like he has that mentality. And he goes, when he faces someone who equally believes that. And he said, and I guess in fighting, you just see a lot more of, they analyze that a lot more. Um, now, I don't know if there's truth to that analysis and it's, and it's just more some perception of something else that we can't measure yet. But it was, uh, but it's fascinating to think about that because when I think of the NFL, you wouldn't call a Manning versus Brady um, type of two teams like headed by those guys as one of them choking, you know, we didn't recognize that as that they, that whoever lost more of those was the choker. You might've said, well, they choked on that week, you know, but they didn't get, they didn't get that permanent label. And I think that, you know, the Browns got that permanent label as a playoff choker and Marty Schottenheimer got that permanent label, which you had a wonderful rant about in an earlier podcast uh, about that. And I could see, you know, as a fan, I think about it and go, I could see how the Browns during that era with Schottenheimer developed a mentality that you see them in a big game and you go, oh, here it comes again. But I think that was more the fans because if you actually watch the games, you see that the, the Cleveland Browns in all those games were very emotionally resilient. They came back. In those games, they were down in one of the the second Broncos game with the fumble. I mean, they were down at halftime pretty big, and they came back all the way to the point to where Ernest Biner fumbled the ball away. And people called him a choker, but then he also helped power Washington's team to a Super Bowl when he got traded away and had one of the better, um, you know, better moments where you could say it was a redemption moment for him. I remember, I remember actually shedding some tears over watching him um, score in that Super Bowl and, and be a meaningful part of that team and being happy for him because I knew that, you know, how the city reacted to him. And maybe there's an element, that's part of the element. I mean, I think the Browns made one of the biggest mistakes they did that cost them years and years of, torment when they fired Marty Schottenheimer. Um, I think that they they saw it. I think the ownership and the fans and the public there saw it as they're chokers and we need to get rid of the choker mentality. They're never going to get over the hump with Marty Schottenheimer. Um, and maybe there was more behind the scenes to that, but that was a that was one narrative that was pervasive with that move. And at the end of the day, I don't know, man. I would, I, I look at it as I would have rather them keep him and continue getting to, getting to see him find ways to have um, maybe gotten over that hump. Um, like Pittsburgh did with Bill Cower. When I mean, Bill Cower, I think had a very similar reputation to Schottenheimer. Yeah. But Pittsburgh, we all know, is one of those even keeled franchises that's not going to overreact and is not going to buy into the narratives and they kept Schottenheimer around and they gave him his, or not Schottenheimer they kept Cower around and they gave him his shots and he won his Super Bowl yeah so I mean it's a it's a fascinating topic especially when you think about I mean who what would make a what could turn momentum around but usually what turns momentum around I would think sometimes is the root cause is 
a good play, good good technique. Suddenly a team, you know, performing a team or an individual just performing something at the right time at maybe when it became massively unexpected and that may be throwing off the opponent or the opponent feeling like they see a series of plays where they thought they had control. They thought that they were winning and then that changes. Because I do think that there is a level of, I mean, we've seen it all in our workplace or in our days where everything seems to be going fine. Everything's going well that day. And then maybe something happens that you, it just completely is unexpected to you. And you're just not mentally in a state to be able to um, overcome that, whatever it is. It could be, you know, the whole day you're, you have a, you know, five-year-old who's asking you, you know, 12 questions every 30 seconds, you know, and you're dealing with that all day. And you know that maybe to begin the day, you weren't in a, in a good mood um, in the first place. But now you're at a point that, you know, maybe you're handling it fine. And then they ask, then something happens that trips it, that when they start doing that, you want to just bang your head against the wall like that by the, by the end of the day. And you've just come at that one point, you're just kind of like, I give up. Like, it's not going to be, you know, I'm, you know, your emotional state is completely done. And then when it comes time to have bandwidth for something that you need to do, you're like, listen, I gotta, I've got to wait till tomorrow to do this. Cause there's no way I'm going to be able to do this effectively after being put through the, the parenting torture of, of a, of a young kid who, who was in that state of growth, you know, um, those are the, you know, so, I mean, I don't know. It, it's going to be fascinating because I don't think there's any way to, invasively you would have to be so invasive into a person's mental and emotional state and how that might impact it collectively to actually ever know when what factors would create that that shift it would be more of a if you know people try to do it i think they purposely try to cultivate emotional standpoint or cultivate certain behaviors to try and trip up people but it you see that, I mean, we look at the lexicon, you think of Barry Sanders, who's like, he was taught by his dad, you know, every time you score a touchdown, just hand the ball off like you've been there before. And, and when, after he made a, he makes a great play, an unbelievable, just supernatural looking type of play. And he just hands the ball off like it was nothing. I'm sure that that could demoralize certain people. Whereas with other people, it wouldn't bother them at all. Or, you know, where somebody else might celebrate at every turn and it drives them crazy because they get so angry with the player for getting, being such a showman on the, the, the most supercilious of plays relative to the way the game is going that they just get taken off their game because all they can think about is that they, they want to hurt the guy as opposed to want to play you know, fundamentally sound, conceptually sound football against him. Whereas other, whereas maybe another player doesn't take the bait at all. And then that ends up creating a momentum shift with the player who's doing all the supercilious shit. But that's, but like you said, how, how do you know? You would have to know like so much about their personality type for that to, for that to be predictive. Yeah. I mean, I think you'd really have to have like, um fmris going at all time you know like if you embedded sensors in players brains and you can like study their their brain patterns you could probably be like oh you know he's he's out of his he's out of his zone don't give a lot um, musk any ideas right <laughs> i would say too uh, i mean you mentioned earlier that like the filters make the players tough and i don't know I don't know if the filters make the players tough or if the filters just weed out the players who weren't tough to begin with. I mean, I do think there is some something to be said for like experience makes you tougher. You know, if you're tough to begin with and you go through, you know, you go through some tough seasons and you get some tough losses, you give up some really heartbreaking comebacks. I think that that can make you more resilient. But at the same time, I think a lot of people, they just don't have the potential to be resilient enough. Yeah. And those guys aren't going to make it to the NFL. You know, if if you can't, you know, think about a cornerback who lets it get in his head when a wide receiver makes a play on him. 
that cornerback's not making it to the NFL because what I don't care who you are. If you're Darrell Revis in his prime, receivers are going to make a play on you sometimes. Yeah. Nobody's going to bat a thousand. And so if you don't have the resilience to, to bounce back when you give up a touchdown, you're not going to, you're not going to progress to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I, I kind of like that momentum is mysterious. I'd rather it not be quantified. I mean, my love of football, I think more than any other team sport, it really embraces that it's a narrative medium, right? It's yeah. it's a sport. It's a competition. We're seeing um, who can perform athletic feats. But really, it's just something that we're using to tell stories, right? It's like you get a, you give a kid little dolls and a dollhouse and the kids, you know, mashing them together and enacting battles. And that's football. Yeah, I, I think the, the most influential people in the history of football are the Savoles and John Facenda and the autumn winds a Raider. And that's the DNA of football Yeah, that, you know, we talk about fans are saying that, Oh, the Browns are chokers. Fans are saying Tony Roma's a choker. And the data says that's not true, right? We can, we can point to, and we can prove, but at the same time, like, I don't want to trivialize the story that the fans tell themselves because the story that the fans tell themselves that's like the highest and most important aspect of football. Yeah. It's a fascinating idea because it's funny as a Browns fan, the reason I love them is I love their resilient play as more. I always saw them as resilient, but maybe that was also my version of trying to be optimistic in the face of, of grave consequences relative to the sport. But I will say, I will counter this as saying, you know, about um, players is that, I can think of a of an example of a of a player who was not resilient, and I can talk about this. I've talked about this in the past, recent in, in the recent present, and that's Ryan Matthews. Um, Ryan Matthews, who was a wonderful running back out of Fresno State, who I remember evaluating him, and I mean, he was a first round pick by the Chargers. He's going to replace Ladanian Tomlinson. Norv Turner wanted to bank on him as being his featured back, and I knew his trainer. Um, and his trainer is a, you know, is a, you know, renowned trainer of, of athletes. And, and he told me during his rook, his second year that, that Ryan Matthews had a very much a, was a wonderful guy. He grew up in difficult circumstances. He was homeless at times during his high school years. Um, and but he had what was often what he would often see from NFL players or young prospects was a false sense of confidence. It was kind of a, they, they would come across with the supreme confidence, but it was really a cover for a very deep insecurity. And he said that with Ryan, you know, his second year when Norv Turner was telling the media, Ryan Matthews is going to be our bell cow back. We're going to feed him as much as possible. This offense is going to go around him. He said, Ryan wasn't training at all. He said, I had helped train him for the draft and helped him get in, you know, a higher first round pick coming from a school that was not a power five school. And he was in great shape then he said, but he went out and he partied and he, you know, ate and drank. And then he came into camp and I kept calling him. I said, when are you coming in here to train with me all summer long? When are you coming? And Ryan just was like, I've got it. I'm good. You know? And then he failed the, the conditioning test and was just literally vomiting at the, you know, after doing the run and he came back and just in, you know, just completely emotionally destroyed, just being like, you got to help me. And, and they worked it out. He said, but he said that was a follow-up to the first game that he was in as a rookie. And I was in the stands and he fumbled just before halftime. And the chargers called me on my phone, knowing I was in the stands and said, come down to the locker room because Ryan's refusing to come out for the third quarter. You've got to talk him into playing, you know, now, I hate saying it because it's like, you know, if he were already playing, I'd hate to say that because it just fuels, again, a perception that I think a lot of players have to fight through certain things. And it's a it's a higher pressure game than what it was like at Fresno State. But now that his career's over and we've seen the length of his career and we've seen that he's had some he had some really good seasons. Maybe he was never the player that 
he was that he was going to be touted to be in terms of reaching the you know the 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 pers- the potential that maybe outsiders or people like me w- saw in him but to have the the length of career that he did and to be a contributor for many years was you know he he had success i think that's how you define success even if it's not from the terms of what the fantasy expectation was um so you know i think we could look back on that and say that's an example of someone who where and i think there are more players like that who do have to fight through it and they eventually do but they often you know it's helped with other people if he didn't have if he didn't have his trainer in the stands i'm not sure he comes out for the third quarter of that game and if they say well he has an injury or they say they make a reason and then they realize that he was not able to come out he might not have been in the nfl um after that one game if he doesn't come out in that for that third quarter so you know there are i think there are more instances than that than we know but it's a um but it's hard to it's we're never going to hear it because again like you said fmris no one's gonna no one would on and i would i would hate to hear anyone would agree to do that in the first place because it's just too invasive too invasive into into people's private lives and who they are and you got to give people a chance to show that they can be resilient as opposed to try and end up inadvertently trying to find out scientific data basically label people something before we fully understand the scope of what this is all about yeah joey harrington wrote an article um when his career was done titled i think it was um despite what you may think my career was a success um and he's another great example of that like People don't know this. One of my favorite trivia um, bits. There are two quarterbacks who posted two of the top 10 single season sack rates of all time. One's Dan Marino. The other's Joey Harrington. Wow. That's a great took, like, one. I know. Took no sacks his first two years. And the reason why is because he was so terrified of making a mistake. Right? <laughs> right. Anytime the pressure was anywhere near him, he's throwing the ball away, yeah. which is bad. Like, it's okay to take sacks sometimes. Sometimes a sack just means that you're willing to take risks. And he wasn't willing to do that. So as a result, he never took any sacks, but he never made any positive plays. And he he was writing that at one point, um, you know, Steve Mariucci, he was, you know, famous for his quarterback development in San Francisco. And Harrington was like, he was doing nothing with me. He wasn't working with me. And at one point I went into his office and I'm like, look, I need permission to make mistakes here. Like, I need you to tell me that I can take a risk and it's going to be okay and you're going to stand behind me. I need that permission. And Mariucci was just like, yeah, whatever. Um, And so he, you know, he, I would say in Detroit, he was not very resilient. He didn't have the courage to take those risks. But then Detroit cut him or or he got traded, um, maybe got traded to Miami. I forget exactly. But at that point, he's like, you know, the worst thing that could happen to me has happened. There's nowhere to go from here right there's no down from here and it it was freeing to him and he's like okay all of a sudden i'm just gonna play right what are they gonna do cut me i'm already on my way out of the league i have nothing to lose and so he got that ability to make mistakes he got that ability to take chances um his play actually improved he contended that had uh i believe it was atlanta not drafted matt ryan he could have hung on for another couple years he could have carved out a career he could have been geno smith and i believe him you know his play was showing the signs of rebounding and he's a great example of a guy who early on no resilience right he 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 was not at all a resilient player and that was his his fatal downflaw and he built that resilience up over time through adversity and by the end of his career you know he had a bunch of stuff dumped on him and he trucked through it you know he kept showing up he kept doing his job um and so he said despite what you think my career was a success maybe it wasn't what you envisioned for me but I'm content with how it played out. I thank you so much for that example because Adam, privately all week, I had forgotten something that I wanted to discuss as a topic that I'm going to be discussing in the Scout Talk podcast with Russ Landy that I wanted to bring up, but I can bring it up here too because it's somewhat related because I watched, again, watching these fighting videos, I watched Teddy Atlas talk about the idea of what can a player there people always talk about in scouting the non-negotiables that 
and and again it's a mysterious thing the way it's all presented because it's this there's there's certain things you just can't teach you know that's the the thing you often hear in the cliche of film analysis and scouting is that they've got certain skills that just can't be taught and certain things if they don't have it they're never going to have it and one of my absolute favorite boxers growing up was Larry Holmes who who sparred with Muhammad Ali who um, I believe tied or broke Rocky Marciano's record for title defenses. Um, and he was an unbelievably underrated um, boxer with, un with great skill, had, the, had a lot of Ali style in terms of being a very great jabber, quick athlete who was savvy at being able to land and avoid punches. Um, and had a very similar style to Ali. But what he was known as, and I didn't know this because when I, the first time I watched him, he had an epic fight to, to, um, to basically, it was one of his, an epic title defense against Ernie Shavers. And Ernie Shavers is also not a well-known fighter in the lexicon. But if you ask any of the great heavyweights from the 70s who the hardest puncher was that they had ever faced and they will all say as if it was like they were breathing it was just as reflexive as, as was ernie shavers it, like he ali i think described it as that it was like a mule kick basically the way how hard he hit and teddy atlas tells a story about how back in the back in larry holmes early career and when he was an amateur he got beat by a boxer by the name of Nick Wells, who was a good fighter, but he got knocked down. And when he got knocked down, he just kind of crumbled. His whole fight crumbled and he lost the fight. And Angelo Dundee told, um, Angelo Dundee thought he, he doesn't have it. He's never going to have it, you know? And he, and Atlas was with Customato and he said, he asked the motto, he goes, what about him? He goes, well, that's tough to overcome. If you melt like that, you know, and you're not resilient like that, um, you, you're not going to last probably very long. He's skilled, but he doesn't have the will. And this whole skill versus will thing is interesting because, well, where can that improve? Well, he ended up fighting Ernie Shavers at this point, and Ernie Shavers hit him. I'm, I watched the punch game. It was one of the hardest shots I've ever seen someone take and it put him on the ground and he literally stood back up and fought back and it was an epic fight and he ended up winning the fight and apparently Teddy Atlas and Customato were watching that and Customato looked at him and he goes right there he just became a pro fighter I know he's been a pro fighter he's in a championship bout but that was the moment that he changed the trajectory of what his what he was about because he's he had that moment where he he was able to withstand the test and and gain the confidence that he would need and i think that that's you know i think joey harrington's story is related to that and it's and it's fascinating because one of the things i do want to talk about that i'm going to be talking about probably in the next five minutes with russ landy is the idea of what things do we think are non-negotiable and what are things that people can be more resilient and overcome, even if it's tough to scout it, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's there's this, like, in quarterback evaluation, there's a lot of things that people think you can't teach. You can't teach accuracy, right? Like, one thing, um, like sacks. Quarterbacks have a specific risk profile. They're going to take a certain amount of sacks, um, and that's extraordinarily stable through their career, you know? But there's always counterexamples. Ben Roethlisberger was one of the most sacked quarterbacks in history. Todd Haley came into Pittsburgh. Todd Haley um, worked with him for a couple of years. And he was one of the least sacked quarterbacks in the NFL after that. Ben Roethlisberger changed his risk profile. Derek Carr, coming in, had the lowest yard per attempt average after adjusting for era of any rookie quarterback in history. He did not throw deep. It was dink and dunk and dink and dunk and dink and dunk. Gruden came in. Look at it starting in 2020. He's taking all sorts of deep shots down the field. You know, he, he was throwing 40 yarders to rugs. Devontae Adams has nearly as many 25 yard receptions with Derek Carr 
as he had with Aaron Rodgers. Um, Derek Carr completely changed his style of play. Josh Allen was a very inaccurate quarterback, you know, and he worked on it and he became accurate. So I'm always hesitant to say, I would say that there's a lot of things that you usually will not be able to teach, but I don't know other than just like raw physical attributes, you know, no cornerback's going to be as fast as Daryl Green, no matter how hard they train. Um, but other than raw physical attributes, I don't know if there's anything that a quarterback or, or a player could just never develop no matter what. And I would just completely write off the possibility. I think most of the time it's extraordinarily unlikely, but I, it's easy to think of individual counterexamples for nearly everything. Yeah. And I think that it's a, it, I, you know, I've heard people say, you know, I remember my daughter, she was, my, my wife was talking about how when my daughter was younger and took up the violin that, um, they had a teacher who was a local who played for a regional symphony who came to teach and and he basically looked at their technique and said well you know at this point you know she'll be a fine you know talked to her at the end and said well at this point she'd be fine and you know if she wanted to become a teacher if she wanted to play recreationally if she wanted she could probably perform well in in a local or civic type of group as an adult um maybe even perform on that level but if she wanted to be play for a symphony her technique's already too far ingrained in this direction and you're not going to be able to unteach it and i remember hearing people say things like that and it's fascinating though because i think that that's i'm not a symphony level musician so it would be hard for me to to counter that and say he's wrong but listening to, I was listening to something called um, Practice, which is a, an ebook. Actually, I've seen I've seen a podcast about this book by a guy by the name of um, Lado Dittman, and Lado Dittman is a world class juggler, like a circus juggler performer, who is recognized apparently as one of the best jugglers in the world in terms of what he does, and he grew up with a family of circus performers. And apparently he didn't become a juggler until much later in life. Like his parents tried to get him into the circus life by, you know, having him try different things at an early age and none of those things he was really good at or interested in. And then finally decided he wanted to become a, a juggler at the level that he's see, they've seen it in, in the, his parents' industry. And he said at every turn he got discouraged by everyone that, around him because they said you're you starting too late like it's already too you're already too far gone it's too it, you know you're not going to be able to learn and he ended up becoming one of the finest jugglers ever and he ended up just writing this book on practice that I'm actually going to buy and and see how it is but the principles that he discussed I've gotten a chance to try a couple of them just in my own music practice and I've thought it actually makes sense some of the things that he's talking about and what he did was interviewed thousands of performers who were at their highest level and not to not yeah first he asked them what they did what their routine you know how do you go about practicing what do you do and they would talk about what they recommend but what they recommend is invariably different than what they actually do um and so there's a subtle difference and what they do um he started to implement and it helped him become the, the, the performer that he is. And I think the, the point of this is that there are times where I think people, it's easy for us to say the conventional methods of doing things, it's going to be too late. It's too hard because nobody knows what the answer is, but doesn't mean that someone won't find the answer. Someone won't do it themselves and figure out a way just because they didn't publish it in an ebook or they didn't or they're not being interviewed about it doesn't mean that they haven't figured out a way so yeah i mean i i think a lot of it is um playing the odds you know most people who have this like philip rivers delivery i think most quarterbacks who are delivering the football like philip rivers or catching the ball like terry mclaurin most people are not going to be successful with that that doesn't mean nobody can be successful yeah. with that but like you say if you're a scout making recommendations to a franchise 
and you see a prospect like Terry McLaurin, you're going to advise him to steer away because most people are not going to be successful with that. It, it, it gets to things that are like, it depends on who your audience is. If, if you are a scout who's making recommendations to a general manager, then say, no, I don't think that they're going to be successful. If you are a trainer who's making recommendations to a player, that's not helpful to say, oh, no, there's no way you're going to make it to the NFL, Terry right. McLaurin. Right. right. Your recommendations should be, if you're going to make it, this is what you need to do. Um, and I think the idea that there needs to be like an a correct answer and the idea that the answer doesn't vary the correct answer doesn't vary based on the audience and what they want and what they need and what their goals are. Um, we, we think too much in black and white. Like it, life is shades of gray. You know, there, there's the right answer for you is not going to be the right answer for me. And that's okay. Yeah. And that's, you know, that I will say this though, the right answer is to listen to this podcast every week with Adam and I, it's a, it's a fun time. We have a good time with it. I know that, you know, those of you who have been listening on a regular basis have, have really enjoyed it. I'm appreciative of Adam joining us today, especially as he's recovering from flu, um, you know, and going from there and, and listen, you know, if you haven't gotten a chance to pre-order the rookie scouting portfolio yet, it is now available at a, an early bird discount of 1995. Um, and then th that's through the 22nd of December, uh, starting the 23rd on, it will be available for the still low price of 2195. You get pre-draft and post-draft analysis. Um, I've been doing this now for 18 years. Um, so the RSP is officially um, legal to vote, I guess, you know, at that point, you know, I don't know, go to war, all those types of things. Um, maybe it'll get, I can kick it out of the house and it'll go to school or maybe get, at least go to a trade school. We'll see. But, um, you know, you can go to mattwaldman.com and find that there. So, um, you know, on behalf of, you know, on behalf of Adam, thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.